this is not restless. Okay, I know you just want to get to the show, but I'm actually here to tell you that there's a way that you can get even more restless in your life. You can do that by going to patreon.com backslash the restless podcast, where there are three different ways, starting at just $3 a month, that you can both support this show and at the same time get even more content, at least one extra episode a week and often more. Not to mention the Restless Telegram channel that you'll have access to 24-7 to interact with all the other patrons. If you want more Restless in your life, this is the way. Go to patreon.com backslash the Restless Podcast. Okay, back to the show. This is Restless. Welcome back to Restless, the postmortem on the young, restless, and reformed. It's October. I wish I had like a good reformed pun to make on the month of October, Pastor Michael, but I don't. So I will just bring in Pastor Michael Bowman. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, Matt. I'm I'm very, um, very glad to have the monday that i've had we're recording on a monday i don't know when these always come out but um but it's been it's been a really good day refreshing enjoyable um, lots of different things going on one of my favorite things is when a day has a lot of very different things right like it's it's just very diverse in the activities that i take part in and that's one of my favorite things so so far that's that's the kind of day it is and i, I really like that that's awesome. I think uh, that's that's different than how I end up scheduling my days. But today we are here to finish the debate between Doug Wilson and Keith Foskey on amillennialism and postmillennialism. Pastor Michael, at the end, I think we'll give a, an assessment of each view, perhaps by the one who doesn't hold it. And um, any 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 pious advice we have about discussing eschatology with others. Right. Um, I, I think um, there's one thing that has kind of crossed my mind. I'm going to start with a bit of a joke towards uh, uh, post-millennialism. You know, the great meme where it's like, you're at the store, mom, can we get post-millennialism? And mom says, no, we have post-millennialism at home. And then it shows what, you know, what they had at yep. home. So I think post the post-millennialism most of us end up with at home, this great golden age we're waiting for, is just them turning everything into pumpkin spice. I think that's all the like actual evidence anyone has for the world uh, <laughs> being better. It's just, uh, I just, the other day, I they got me with one. They never get me with the, the pumpkin spice things um, because I am not a suburban woman in my 30s. I'm a <laughs> suburban man in my thirties. Um, but they make pumpkin spice eggnog now. And so they release eggnog early. Ooh, and as it, and as an eggnog appreciator, dude, eggnog is so good. I was like, dude, eggnog in October. Let's give it a try. Um, yeah, I think I prefer normal eggnog, but, um, <laughs> but anyways, eggnog is so like pungent and flavorful. If it's done well, anyway, yep. right? Like there's a lot of flavor going on to then just take that and then add, 
pumpkin spice. That is what it they just did. seems a little extreme. Uh, the pumpkin spice appreciators are an extreme group, though, to be fair <laughs> to them. So, anyways, we are here, though, to do eschatology. Pastor Michael, uh, just so everyone knows, does hold to a form of post-millennialism, and I hold to a form of amillennialism. And we are listening to a debate, though debate is a generous word. Yeah, more I've been told that toward the end, they kind of get to a couple of things where they really do have maybe more sub- substantive disagreement. Mm-hmm. But even that, it didn't sound like it was much. Yeah, I, I don't think we're going to get we're going to get the evening of eschatology fireworks. I uh, brought this up in our Patreon chat that the first time I became aware, so I'm thankful that uh, uh, Desiring God did this at one of its conferences years and years ago, probably like 2012, they did an evening of eschatology. And Doug Wilson was the one there actually representing post-millennialism. John Piper, though a pre-millennial guy, was not representing it. And Sam Storms was doing amillennialism. And uh, no offense to Sam Storms, but but after I watched it, I was like, I'm never going to hold the view that guy did. <laughs> really, man, think- you got to stop doing that, man. I know. I <laughs> Every time I end up doing it, I don't think he did the best. Um, well, he was Sam Storms on millennialism too. Although he has kind of, you know, he he has brought quite a few, uh, particularly young men from within uh, New Calvinism into the amillennialist fold. Um, my understanding, anyway, is that his amillennialism is not really a historic amillennialism. It's pretty particular. Um, I don't know exactly why that is. I've just heard that from a number of of reformed thinkers that his amillennialism is not is not quite uh, the historic understanding of amillennialism. But I don't, you know, I don't really know why. It it is interesting. I've never read his book um, uh, because of how he handled himself in that that night. So again. In especially at that time, especially to the desiring God crowd, your amillennial and postmillennial views are the minority there. That's what people are unfamiliar with. And so he was trying to forcefully present amillennialism, and the premillennial guy was objecting, and Doug Wilson was objecting. And as you can tell based on this video, Doug Wilson was just having a good time. He was. And Sam Storms was not. And no. John well, had to be and like, the other guy too from South. There was a guy from Southern, and yes. nobody remembers who he was. Um, yeah. But he, like, he also was pretty intense. Yeah. And Sam Storm, I just remember the one point where Sam Storm says something like, "Like if I held the like the premillennial view, I'd have to deny the inerrancy of Scripture." Yeah, exactly. And, and John Piper says, "Don't yeah. say that, Sam. Yeah. Like he's don't just do like, that. don't, don't so, say stuff like that." So that was the moment we where. That would be fun. We should. Actually, please let us know. Message us. Let us know if you would enjoy us us watching that, um, or at least parts of it. But yeah, that was again. I think the way he acted, though I do know he has brought a lot of people into millennialism. I think he set back millennialism a few years when you announce, "Hey, these highly debated views." If I held one, I'd deny the inerrancy of Scripture, and everyone goes, "Uh, no, you wouldn't." (laughs) Like you just like, uh. Nah, that's not how we handle this. So, all right. Well, let's go back to this much less spicy debate so far. Um, the last thing we heard was Doug Wilson talking about how uh, there will be pain even in forms of post-millennialism. So I would guess we're going to hear something from Mr. Foskey next. 
That's that's very helpful. Um, I, I was when when, uh, when both of you were talking about uh, the uh, evangelism and the imminency of Christ. I wrote down the word urgency. I think there's uh, there's an urgency in premillennialism for evangelism. There's an urgency in postmillennialism for engaging the culture and winning. Keith, I'll ask you this, and then Doug, you can give an answer as well. What what is the urgency, the sense of urgency, given your eschatological position on millennialism? I'm going to stop you right there because that was a weird question. Yeah. Pastor Michael, would you agree that that is a strange question? It is. It is a strange question. Also, the fact that he, I mean, he, because he said premillennialism, right? I didn't hear that wrong, did I? So he said there's an urgency for premillennialism, uh, for, evangelism and premillennialism yep and then postmillennialism an urgency for uh, cultural like engagement cultural and engagement, which movement. i'm not sure that's right i'm not sure that that's true also that sounds weird right like that does sound weird um but then it just leaves all millennialism kind of well and that's why he's asking keith because yeah. i think uh i again i love this this is a great example and i'm gonna try and say this very winsomely <laughs> And not become the sandstorms of this. <laughs> this to me sounds like a question of someone who perhaps has gotten very excited about a certain kind of eschatology mm. and is not particularly informed about maybe the right way to think about how these things end up working out. Yeah. Because man this is i think this is an important question we need to come to at the end right i think we need to get well this is something we'll come back to so i'll just i'll i'll i will tease it now we need to talk about let's say pastor michael and i in that great glorious day someday we are working uh as pastors together same church somewhere right i don't know it'd have to be lacrosse because i don't think pastor michael's ever moving i'm not planning to um, i'm not planning to um so we need to ask what, if any, practical difference it would make for us to hold our differing views, assuming we both hold the same view we do now, then what practice let's let's come back to that at the end, um, because he has That's just a good question. he has just described. Apparently, there's something very different now. I different between post-millennial and pre-millennial and, and, and what probably the, he's like i don't know what yeah this other guy's gonna say do you have any urgency or are you just kind of a blah person most amillennialists are but yeah. like that's yeah that's not their fault that's <laughs> but would you do you accept the premise even the premise that he's describing no. of no of these others and tell no, us and i was i was going to say that you know i don't know what fossey's going to say but i don't think um i actually don't think i do think that premillennialism may for a time create a kind of urgency for evangelism i'm not sure that actually holds long term but i will say that i mean there's a lot of evangelism and missions that's done around the world often in the name of premillennialism like this is happening soon we better like we got we got to make sure that we tell people um that's true. Although, honestly, I, like in my experience anyway, a lot of folks that get really excited about Christ coming back any moment now, look at what it says in the newspaper, 
they're usually less interested in evangelism and more interested in, hey, look, this war just broke out in Ukraine with Russia. That must be Gog and Magog. And this is what, like, that's what they're interested in, not actually, hey, we need to make sure that we start telling people about Christ. Um, and what about in post-millennialism? Do you accept that? No, no, no. The idea that there's an urgency that that means win. you have to. I actually think it's opposite if understood properly. I actually think that um, there's a sense in which there there can be a confidence that over time the the gospel is going to triumph in the world, but it's not an urgency. It actually creates, in a sense, the opposite. Just like a strong, confident faith that I don't I don't have to see immediate cultural change right now mm-hmm. because the way that God works in the world is through uh, the the proclamation of the gospel, through the expansion of His kingdom, changing hearts and lives, and that will have an effect subsidiarily on what you know how people live but but i don't think that actually the urgency is there for winning cultural battles Um, at least not when post-millennialism i think is properly understood now i will say that on the popular level post-millennialism is usually it's i mean that is how it's understood or presented right like that is um it is it is primarily a cultural endeavor for a lot of people Right. And and that is why I, right in our first episode, kept saying postmillennialism is a posture towards culture looking for an eschatology. Yep. And that we that there is a division that should take place. And I actually think again, these are even framing the question this way, um, is I think is really unhelpful because when the premillennial way of evangelism, because I do think there is a kind of urgency that it usually exists within um, a premillennial framework, right? Why were we, um, wh- how was premillennialism used as a, when I was a kid? It was, you need to become a Christian so you don't get left behind. Yep. Tell your friends to become Christians so they don't get left behind. There is an urgency there, but I actually think what it ended up doing is it very much truncated what evangelism meant yes yes because the literally the apparent because the only thing that could matter and at the expense of good doctrine at the expense of every question we could ask about um about what we should be doing as christians was trumped with the only thing that matters are lost people getting saved there's nothing else that we should be at don't even ask another question because that's all that matters yeah okay so i'm just going to go on a little tangent because we just had a missionary couple with us um, that we've supported as a church for a while who does uh ministry training pastors in uganda Um, and it was it was so sweet and refreshing and great Uh, but one of the things he said is that um you know in uganda uganda is officially 80 percent christian um, and so it, I mean, it's a Christian nation according to, you know, those numbers, but he said, most people that you meet are, you will actually find that, you know, there's, there are a lot of people that if you start talking to them and they, you know, you start to get to the point where you say, Hey, well, you know, we'll have you like, do you know, Christ, have you been saved? Um, he told one story about somebody who came, uh, he was with a pastor sitting on a porch this man came over and said, I've been having nightmares um, and these like basically being tormented by by evil spirits and uh, and was asking, what can I do right to these two pastors, basically? And um, they said, well, like, you know, one of the things they said, well, you're going to have to like come to know Christ. And the man said something like, oh, well, I've already gotten saved five times. 
And that's, he said, that's common, that that's common across the board because what people have been taught is this kind of like numbers evangelism, right? You just got to get somebody to say the sinner's prayer or just be saved and then you move on and that's it, right? And so he's trying to work with people at creating healthy churches that actually disciple people in a, in a full orb way. And it's, you know, it's a great work. Um, but that a lot of that comes, uh, as far as I understand it, um, as a fruit of a kind of, of missions and evangelism emphasis that said, we just need people to say, say it, to just say the prayer or to get the numbers, even just, hey, we need the numbers so we can go back to the U.S., tell the churches, look at all these people that are getting saved. Would you keep giving us money so that we can keep doing this work? Um, but that does, that breaks down so quick. Um, and, it, and it actually has a, a you know overall negative effect as opposed to a long-term positive effect. Right. And I would say if, if your eschatology also becomes this thing that says, well, I need to go win, I need to go fight, that again, it, it becomes a version, it becomes actually more of an ideology and yes. almost certainly a utopian, a utopianism. Yeah. That will take these stands. Um, because there is an urgency. We should be urgent to tell right the news, the story of the gospel. But but again, I even say it that way because. What I'm trying to say is that the thing that the reformed world has and brings to missions that at times makes it look slower. Now, there are places where the reformed world, we're basically sitting in an ivory tower and we aren't urgent enough. Right. right? That is that is very possible. But this idea that I need to tell the story of of the gospel and I'm telling it as public proclamation. I'm saying that everything needs to be reorganized because Jesus is out of the grave. That does have implications for specific lost sinners and is an obviously a major focus, is a major part of what we're doing. But it also has things to say to families, has to say things about organizing churches, teaching people to obey, right? It does have things that we're going to announce to um, other institutions in our yeah. I mean, this is it's the great commission right exactly. all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go go therefore make disciples of all nations baptizing them right and we kind of get to that point you know there's this idea of you know okay well we evangelize person gets saved quote unquote maybe they're baptized but then it stops right right but the great commission goes on and christ says teaching them to obey everything that i've commanded and so like there's a uh you know, huge hole. If the the urgency is a kind of urgency that just says, "Well, we just need them to do this quick thing," right? Uh, no, act, like what Christ commanded us to do is the kind of thing that is expected to take time, to take effort, to take you know, to to enfold this person into the life of the church, to shepherd them, and to d- truly disciple them, meaning making them more and more like Christ in every area of their life. Like that's that is the 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 purpose in a sense of missions right to make proper worshipers of god yes and of course i affirm as michael said earlier that reconciled people to god will affect their families their cities their nations no problem with that but the great commission does not um include own the libs 
right? It like the like those aren't that's not part of it. And so I again I think that again this it's just a but the, I'm still gonna own the libs by discipling people. I'm not, I mean that's it's I'm, just a nice like added bonus, is all I'm saying. But <laughs> this question that we've now talked on for more than 10 minutes was particularly bad. It was not good. It was not good. So we'll hear what Keith says. What gets you up in the morning? Well, I would pumpkin spice. No, not, it doesn't get me up in the morning. <laughs> Say the, uh, both of the things that you said are, are true of amillennialists. And, and, you know, I, I, I don't know if I said this earlier. I don't think I did, but you know, sometimes the, the, um, Postmillennialists are called optimists, and the the premillennialists are called pessimists. And if that's true, then I guess we're the realists. Uh, that <laughs> and, and and so we. Well, I'm with, glad that's settled. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 we we have the reality that um, you know we are going to uh, continue to preach the gospel and continue to expect that there is a binding of Satan through the preaching of the gospel. There is uh, the flourishing of the gospel throughout the world, and we're seeing that in not necessarily in the United States, but even though it is there, the gospel is going out in the United States, but in other parts of the world, it's, it's flourishing, and especially where it's persecuted, it's flourishing wonderfully. And so, so we're, we're thankful and getting up in the morning and knowing that we're supporting missionaries that are going, and we're holding the rope for these men who are going into these terrible places, and we're sending them, and we're thankful. Um, and, and still, Standing outside of abortion clinics like like I have done and, and, and will continue to do and, and continue to preach the gospel in the open air as we do at our church. Uh, these are not things that are opposed to the amillennial view. Um, it, 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 like I said, we, when, when it comes down to brass tacks, there may not be that big of a difference between us in the sense of how we do ministry, because I think we both have the same goal, and that's that, that the world would hear the gospel and that Christ would change hearts and through that change this world. It's just what, what, what extent are we going to see that change? Yeah. All right. So he finished his answer. I can tell because the moderator is about to ask another question. So I'll go. Way to go, Keith. We get it all. We do it all. The all millennialists do it all. Um, the only thing that is worth mentioning, I think he basically shared something very similar to what Pastor Michael and I said that we don't want to pit these things against each other. Yeah. There are completely appropriate ways to be involved in both. I would say that one perhaps emphasis, if I can talk about a cultural emphasis that is related to amillennialism, again, you will hear in the way I keep talking, I'm making a very, I end up making a very, very modest claim when I talk about amillennialism. They sure. talk, they've talked almost nothing about the book of Revelation, which appears <laughs> to be like the actual thing we would need to discuss in a debate like this. Um, I think the one thing you hear in his answer that might be related to it is um, there is an emphasis he's making on the spirituality of the church's mission, the specific mission of the institutional church being declaring the gospel, right? Preaching at abortion meals. Everything he's talking about are, is the church doing, um, is the church engaging in its spiritual mission, um, which is, again, not primarily related to outcomes in the world, but are primarily related to the proper declaring of the gospel, teaching, administering of sacraments, which is not something um, uh, which is perhaps an emphasis they particular like they particularly take and try and protect. But of course, it's something Pastor Michael and I would be in complete agreement on. Um, 
and the the down the the place where pastor michael is you know gets to tell um amillennialists call them downers and all that is where for what for a reason i literally can't understand why they tell individual christians well the church is doing this it has a spiritual ministry and mission by god and i guess that's all you should care about too like it it appear like there is a kind of amillennialism that basically tells a christian like a christian magistrate apparently wouldn't have much of a job uh, a christian in their their neighborhood their families there's apparently not much of a creational or redeemed new creation purpose there which is a which is not good and this might be where we start finding it coming together with radical a version of the two kingdoms that are yeah i was gonna say i mean and this is where um there is a lot of amillennialism and this is you know where i think it's fine to like bring it down basically to the exegetical level of various um eschatological texts because it does seem to me that there's a lot of of modern amillennialism that does basically share a huge portion of their thinking with a kind of premillennial ideals of of what the text would call us to do but i think you're right it's in part because it's tied to these other ideas about the nature of the kingdom um you know radical two kingdoms kind of stuff there's you know uh you know this understanding of the spirituality of the church that becomes much more than that doctrine ever really taught or meant uh but becomes this kind of all-encompassing like because the church is a spiritual institution because you're a part of it Therefore, like that's true of you too. Like you're not, you don't live in the real world anymore. Um, at least not in in such a direct sense that you need to be active and involved in it or should care at all. You know, um, that does seem to happen uh, pretty regularly today, um, and and that's a bummer, man. That is a downer. Yeah. All right. Let's keep going. Right. Can I can I break in just a second and then I'll give Doug your you can respond to that so so keith you're telling me that it it's legitimate for a pastor to call his civil magistrate to legislate in a certain way say abolish abortion rather than regulate abortion would you agree with that's a legitimate thing for a pastor to do once again just <laughs> can i just go on record brutally bad question um <laughs> <laughs> who, who chose this guy to like when this was like we're gonna do this debate quote unquote i was pretty excited about it i don't i don't really know who this guy is but he's not the love, guy to choose. love you love to have you record uh original music for our uh for our <laughs> intro but this is this this is a brutally bad question because this this again this is a question of someone who has begun to connect their eschatology to their politics and to everything else yeah and and it, again it's not bad that making connections is something we love to do which is why we do conspiracy corner but again this idea that you require a certain um a certain kind of eschatology to have a to believe there's a certain kind of abortion activism that we should be engaging in is crazy this is and this is where an actual helpful two kingdoms thing does come in right yep. and everyone guess what everyone in church history from when 
uh, Paul, they had literally no power. Paul went, I'm going to go tell a king what to do. Yep. Right. The church has always felt the right to go tell and instruct a leader, um, regardless of what the outcomes could or could not be what to do. Right. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is not does not care, does not have a specific millennial outlook, instructs Christian magistrates what to do. Yep. So just I'm going to. Yeah. What a weird what a weird question. Uh, yeah, I would say that uh, I, I am an abolitionist, uh, and I there there's some there is some um, in my heart. I I I I I understand some of the people who are incrementalists, and I don't want to paint them with a terrible you know brush. I know that sometimes that's a, and I know that's not what we're here to debate. But but in my heart, I believe abortion is a sin. I believe it's wrong, and I believe it's it's against God's law, and it's and it should be against all of man's laws because it's one of the most right. things that's ever existed. And so like um like Jonah who 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 went to Nineveh and and proclaimed repentance and 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 god saw fit to bring repentance from the king all the way down to the stall uh you know i would i would preach the same i would say i would call men to repent because they are facing the judgment of god a man who stands behind a governmental desk or behind the oval in, within the oval office who makes a, a a declaration of some law is going to stand before god and be judged for that and i think he needs to hear that and so yeah i, I certainly would well good i uh, the only reason i brought that up is that does not sound like a lot of my other Amil friends that are more two kingdom R2K, they don't think it's legit for a pastor to do such a thing. So I just want to. Well, and, 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 and perhaps I may disagree with some of my brothers on that and that's fine. Yeah. Um, you know, again, I, I, uh, I, I've been known to disagree with people. So <gasps> it would be, but, but no. uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. No. All right. Uh, <laughs> so pastor Michael, I, you just tell me, does, I again I I'm maybe I'm a sheltered guy. Does that sound like anyone? No. Well, um I like I mean we brought it up, right? There is a, a kind a very specific and pretty small um breed of the reformed world, but fairly influential for its size. Mm -hmm. Um that does seem to tie these different things together, right? Um uh, this, you know. He even mentioned the R2K, you know, yep. kind of on millennialism might say, yeah, like there's no place for us to do these things. Uh, but it just feels it feels out of place still, even though that might be a connection that you might make, depending who you talk to. It doesn't seem like a legitimate point of debate when you're talking about eschatological systems. Yep. Right. But that, you know, it just I just keep thinking, OK, I, um, base. So, so what, do you, what do you, what kind of moderator do you prefer, Matt, for a debate? You prefer this or do you prefer some of our, uh, TGC good faith uh, debate moderation? Jim, Jim That's Davis, the question. Jim Davis or Tim Bouchong. You let us know in the comments. <laughs> um, I also think, man, it'd be, I don't want to do this cause I don't want to stir up any nests. And anytime you may ask a question about the abolitionists among us, you stir up the greatest nest of all time. I certainly believe pastors and churches, we have one, the, basically the political power that we have is announcing that you will be judged, announcing God's standard, praying for them. Um, and I think you have awesome, actually, examples of this in church history. Ambrose, right, when he excommunicates Theodosius, he doesn't have any political power, but he literally ends 
basically he ends the gladiatorial games by yep. doing this right so right. that yeah so by using the spiritual power of the church right and like not not by branching into not by not by saying hey i would like to try to hold some new office in right. the roman empire and i would like people to support me in that not by saying hey everybody grab like grab a weapon and we're gonna like you know do this um not even and you know um, not because at all times for all reasons you know some kind of actual use of force um would be wrong right like this, that that happens at times but because that's not his role exactly as this, a pastor right this, his role is spiritual in nature yeah this is my precise point and question i think is that is the church's political power what we just described but what i've realized is that abolitionists and potentially the tim bouchon popular level of post-millennialists think that's the only kind of political power that we can use and actually that matters and that i don't think is the case yeah so I, this is where i think this comes up and i so i'm not um let me say it this way i am not 100 saying this is wrong every time or 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 something like that um i think that what's ha what is happening when that does take place is basically because leadership in a lot of other forms has just fallen apart sure. like it's a con community leadership basically for most people it exists in the church with their pastors mm -hmm. and so they look to them for leadership in these things and that is not actually i think the worst thing i don't think it's horrible i think it makes sense um i, I don't think it's ideal um i don't think that you know for instance it's ideal to have pastors who are also political leaders i don't i don't know if i'm ready to say that you shouldn't do that only because there's sometimes i think there are situations today where it might be like like i don't know who else is doing it right now like there's like there could be good yeah maybe not ideal but like it maybe it should still happen um, i do think there's a huge danger in making the pulpit uh, basically a place for, uh, you know, political rallying cries uh, to make, basically to make the church subservient to earthly political programs. Mm. I think that's really dangerous. Uh, be, and, you know, for, for multiple reasons, most important is because it does very often lead to taking the church off its actual mission, right? The actual purpose, the, the spiritual and declarative role of the church in this world. I think that like that's so central and so necessary um, for salvation for everything that um, to remove the church from that mission is incredibly dangerous. Um, and and yet I'm not willing to say this. It's always wrong or something like that. Um, it And honestly, think about this. So a lot of the you know, a lot of the abolition, movement, which I love these guys in the sense yeah. that like if there was a button in front of me right now that said you can outlaw abortion 100 percent across the nation or Dang. across the world would you do it i'd hit it in a heartbeat wouldn't hesitate would it like all of me wants that right i also despise you lose all your wealth we lose yeah. you lose tons you, like whatever whatever it takes like that's like i'm ready to do that 100 yep. and like i also hate the the grifting of so much so-called pro-life organizations that really don't want to outlaw abortion because it would lose them all of their money and funding um like there that is real i've seen it I know that that's real. So I, I also despise that, that kind of stuff. Um, 
a lot of times though, I think this stuff takes root in more baptistic circles where there like there really isn't a place for the state. You know mm. what I mean? Like there's just the the historic understanding of church state two kingdoms, like any of those sorts of things. I just don't think that there's really a, a significant uh, place for the role of that because a lot of, you know, Baptistic theology was formed under the persecution of right. states, right? So, so the state is often seen in pretty much a negative light. So if anything good has to happen, well, maybe it has to happen through the institution of the church. The, and this is the actual danger of this kind of postmillennialism we've um i'm i'm happy to grant uh the the bummer uh amillennialism that comes along with radical two kingdoms this new revision of what it means that jesus rules the church and uh state right or that he he distributes power differently to different institutions uh differently that i think has that uh, has become unattractive. This is the danger of of post-millennialism. Again, before World War One, all the progressive utopians who started the welfare state and may have lit the UN and may have literally destroyed the world were all post-millennial Protestant Christians, right? They, they did. It was post-millennials who brought about the end of the West. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the yeah. the end times of the West came about because of post-millennialism. Um, and yeah, that, obviously, and there were a lot of other things, right? It wasn't just post-millennialism that did it, right? That wasn't it. But I think what we, we need to, you know, what we need to acknowledge is again, the, what the, what the abolitionist gets right is that our preaching actually what is true is important and is powerful and to never move off that and how corrupt many people are who don't. But I think the um, the danger with some of this is if I simply state a political outcome or a political order that I want to see and I just keep repeating it and preaching it, that's all it's going to take for it to come into existence, right? It's this, I can... and. And again, this is what happened with Reconstructionism, which was a version of postmillennialism. We're just, again, sorry if this is all really in the weeds, but it's eschatology. There's no other way to do it, right? They are like, I can posit this Christian theonomic world order that's going to happen because I can just say that's what God's going to do. And it might take 500 years, but don't worry. That's what, like, I think the original Reconstructionist, by the way, wasn't it wasn't it's going to take 500 years. It was, look, we're on the verge of collapse right. in this country. Yeah, it's going right. to all fall apart. And this is what we're going to do to build up from the ruins. Yep. It was pretty specific, right? Like it, it was very specific. And I think that a politics in other requires us to take the world as it is, to accept people in and social orders as they are that Christ rules and can work through, right? Like this is why we don't need to get rid of monarchies when people become Christians. We don't need to change forms of government. There are ways that the Christian church and Jesus Christ can rule through these different things, right? And that as Christians, the church has a specific kind of spiritual power. We as citizens need to act as citizens. We need to have um, uh, a certain level of political 
like political will, right, in terms of culture, right, that that there is a uh, a place for incremental saving of lives and changing of laws and these kinds of things. Even and at if, times, maybe like great to have like full overhaul. Like, of course, man, we can. Yeah, we can just do this and we're going to do it. Right. And um, and again, not because these are the goal, but because, again, in when you come to culture, when you come to the world, you come to it as you are, right? So the the Christians who start the um, pregnancy center, right? That is, well, that's not gonna, that's not taking a, uh, you know, a sledgehammer to legal abortion. Well, guess what? They're going to go and counsel women and try, like, this is a, they are taking a specific act based on the enduring complete christian principle and they are applying it in one way and of course what we need to do is we need christians to apply these things in every sphere of life right and so but but you're right i think you're probably right that it there are there are probably reasons and because of how little trust we have that in the created world we end up wanting the spiritual power to be the only power or it to take over everything else because we're so like at least i can trust my pastor yeah. so maybe- well, and that's what i like that's why i say i think it's understandable yeah yeah right like people are like i can't trust anybody all institutions are falling apart but here's my local church and i actually do trust these right. people so, and so least- they're like why aren't you legislating Yep. Well, I, you know, I can't, I can't do that. Or, I want, like, I would love to disciple the guys that are, but I'm not like, I'm not the legislator. I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that. And my pastor says, Jesus changes everything about my life. So I'm going to go to him with economic questions and um, he's going to open to the Proverbs and give me, right. Like there, I understand why this, this, I, and I and I and certainly in the state we're in, I I feel the sympathy for it, right? That is yeah. certainly the case. Um, but yeah, I I again I we're we're going really far afield from this thing. Let's let's try and get this thing done. Uh, Prince of the Post Mills, Doug. What do you what do you say to that? Yeah. So um, <laughs> it it sounds to me that that Keith is more than happy to to witness for and fight for various tactical victories on the ground, right? Outside the abortion clinic or in a particular situation, uh, God has put us in various settings and I have to witness to the the truth of the gospel and God's untouchable law wherever I am, okay? Um, so I, I don't have any doubt that all sorts of amils and pre-mills too, for that matter, are able to be faithful tactically where they are. What happens when you're testifying before the magistrate and the magistrate listens yeah. and the mag- and the magistrate says, oh, you're right. That is a big sin. We're going to – and the, the kingdom of Nineveh tells everybody, okay, everybody, the, the orgy's off. We're, we're <laughs> repenting. Um, we're repenting now. Um, would the Amils – all of a sudden, it's a strategic issue. It's not tactical anymore. It's not just one sidewalk or one section of your town. All of a sudden, you have this breakthrough. And and Jonah goes, oh, crud. Um, you know, that's not what I wanted. And and Jonah's not a coward. He's uh, He just hated Nineveh. He just he just wanted to see Nineveh burn. Um, and he knew, I, God, you're like this. 
you, this is just the sort of thing I was afraid you were going to do. That's why I ran to Tarshish. Would the Amil, when, when the king repents, when there's a massive revival, there's a great breakthrough, are you going to struggle fitting it into your eschatology? Uh, I would say no, only because uh, if that were to happen, I would rejoice, uh, just like I, I did rejoice when the when the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade, even though uh, I know that there's a ton more work to be done. I can still rejoice in those types of victories and see that happen and thank God for it. Um, I, I, I can thank God for it, and yet at the same time know that in this situation that we're in, and the in the structure of government that we're in, it would take it would take such a wholesale and massive change in the hearts mm -hmm. of more than just one man. It's not as if as as if we have a king who can make a decree, even though the president often yeah. acts like he is. <laughs> uh, it, it, we we have a situation where it it, it 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 might change my eschatology if I saw all yeah. of our senators <laughs> repent in the sackcloth and ashes. And uh, yeah, I mean that, that like you, you said if you're you know if you were caught up in the air, you would change your eschatology on the way up. Well, if I saw if I saw the government, uh, you know cast down their idols and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that, that would change. But, but as I said, it's, it's an expectation situation at this point. I don't expect that, even though I preach to the man and I, and I do call him to, I don't expect it, but if it were to happen, I wouldn't be unhappy. I wouldn't be yeah. like Jonah and, and, and cursing the gourd. You know, I'd be, I'd be happy, you know, uh, uh, or cursing God because of the gourd. I'd be praying and thanking well, God for his, his ministry. One of my pleasant eschatological daydreams is to, Envision the day when the earth is as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The mission, our missions were triumphant. The, all the nations have streamed to Christ, and it was all done by dispensationalists. And <laughs> and and, and um, the Left Behind series is is studied in all the schools, and it's on the the bestseller list. Millions of them sell, and and the dispensationalists are looking around at each other. What do we What do we do now? <laughs> and as we all know, Doug Wilson is an entertaining writer speaker that would probably make a good at least short story or novel. Uh, that would for, be so funny. That'd be so good, Matt. Um, here's a question, Matt. Great, great. If I was wondering all of if Congress repented, would you change your eschatology? <laughs> no, I would say. We finally have Abraham Kuyper, the king of the Amills, who came in and cleaned house. <laughs> we have a uh, because I mean, maybe I like it's like I don't know, but but yeah, this is this is my uh now I'll say if there are like if there is a if there is a stripe of Amills that would be like, oh no, what are we gonna do? Christianity has once again taken the center of western civilization or our country or our whatever and would find that a strange position to be in then you probably have a a strange problem right like the westminster confession of faith was written by an act of parliament everybody and if you're like well that doesn't fit with my version of the kingdom then like the then what produce the theology that you believe is the most widely held protestant document in history held by the most protestants today of any um and is the clearest um description of both biblical doctrine which we call the reformed faith then it was written by people who completely disagree with the role of the church and the state with you your 
your apparent end times theology would never have gotten us the Westminster Confession. So I think that there is a like if you actually have a problem with that, there is a view. Um, obviously, the right the reason I bring up Abraham Kuyper is he he had a a clear view of how he was going to engage and um and literally win the entire legislature um but i think the the amil answer is that but that that doesn't signal the end right that actually just signals like um discipleship and that as perhaps as we should have expected guess what amsterdam and the Netherlands aren't anymore. They're nothing like that. Like, I mean, they would probably at most European countries would put Abraham Kuyper in prison if he was attempting like his newspaper Christian political party today. Right. I don't, you know, like, and so I think that that is, that is what we, that is what we expect. We expect the gospel to have that kind of fruit and we expect that, there to be active rejection of it um that both of those things are possible and um going to continue in this age so that's my answer to your question great yeah no i so this is i really think that what we're getting down to and both of us i think basically agree on this much is that currently the way that both amillennialism and postmillennialism are juxtaposed is on the basis of how much cultural influence will the church have or how much like what what will change culturally over time or how much or how soon and honestly it seems to me like most people have a really um, sh basically a short time horizon either yep. way so uh, this is something that's striking um, if you just study the history of, of various eschatologies is um, most people who have ever, you know, believed in a kind of, of you know, um, should I say, I know that, you know, um, I think we all believe in a kind of, I don't know, uh, and those, those people who are convinced that Christ is going to return any moment, like it's, it's about to happen. This is probably most consistent at times with the premillennial system. Um, the way that things are going to happen, it's going to happen suddenly um, really soon. Um, everybody thinks that. And everybody has been wrong, right? Like, so everybody, uh, everybody thinks I am living in the last days. Right. Everybody thinks this. Uh, and this is even true in a lot of modern postmillennialists. Not in the sense that they think this is the end, but they think, man, right now is the crucial cultural hinge moment that's mm. going to change everything, right? Yeah. Like the the time I'm living in. And this is where the so this a lot of this comes from my just my studying of of especially people that you know have um, over over the centuries started to say, hey, Christ is returning on this date, right? Like they start to actually predict, like this will be the day that he comes based on these these numbers or this exegesis or, or whatever it is. Um, and this has happened time and time and time and time again, over and over and over and over again. It happened in the early church. It happens today. There's so many other times that it's happened that it's 
um, it it gets to the point where you think, huh, what like what is it that makes everybody think this is it? Mm. We are the we're the hinge moment. And I'm pretty convinced at this point that most eschatology, no matter what, no matter what position it says it holds to, right? Like whatever position somebody says, I think one of the biggest factors in most of them happens to be um, the the current cultural system that the person's living in, right? Like it's um, for, for the vast majority of eschatologies, cultural situations dictate how you think about this rather than um, exegetical judgments, right? Like that just seems to be the case over and over and over and over again. Um, And I don't, I don't totally know what to do with that, but maybe, maybe one thing, especially if you're thinking, man, like this is the, the hinge point of history, whether that be turning for good so that we make it to that, you know, future golden age, or whether it be the hinge point in that it's all about to go down in flames and then Christ will come and restart everything. Yeah. Um, in a certain, in a certain sense, that's actually uh, true in that, uh, in that I think that uh, maybe we go back to what we said last time uh, that every time that the the imminent coming of Christ, however we want to, you know, speak about what exactly that's talking to is spoken of in the New Testament. The recommendation or the commands that the apostles give in light of these things is always the same. And it's the same thing that you would have if you were saying that um, life is going to go on as it is right now for the next 10,000 years. It's actually the same. They're the same things. There, there might be little little differences um, because sure. of, for instance, you know, when, when Christ is talking about the judgment that's coming on Jerusalem, he says, pray it's not going to be in the winter. Pray that you're not pregnant during this time, right? Uh, that's, that's because there's a particular local judgment coming. Uh, there, like there's going to be maybe slight differences in how you live based on something like that um, and how you understand that. But overall, overall, the things that are encouraged in light of the coming judgment, in light of the fact that we will all um, be uh, standing before Christ on his judgment seat, in light of the fact that, that uh, you know, he will come and we will be caught up with him in the clouds, the, the commands are always the same. So live obediently, right? So like, it's not um, the, the question about urgency. The urgency should really not be placed in any way on the time. Like, at, you know, okay, any moment this is going to happen, or, or we really have to push things because this is the hinge point of history right now. My life is the hinge point of history. Um, the, the urgency is actually more so put on you want to be the kind of person that when you meet Christ, you're not shocked by who he is or what he's like, because you've already been living in the light of his glory, seeking to be transformed by that glory throughout your life, right? You're, you're seeking to be holy as I am holy, the Lord says, right? Like that's, that's what you've been doing anyway. 
And so if Christ returns tomorrow or Christ returns in 10,000 years and you die and you go to, to uh, uh, be with him when you're apart from your body, guess what? It's like, it's the same either way, right? Like it is the same way that you're counseled to live. Now, I do think that scripture speaks to, uh, you know, uh, speaks to the, the, the nature of, of what the world will be like when Christ does return. And, and so, you know, I have my own view on that, but I do think that either way, the, the commands, what you should do is the same. It's not, Hey, this is going to happen any moment. So you need to go change the laws in your country or, Hey, this isn't going to happen for a long time, but we need to change it right now. Either way, it's, it's actually the, the same kind of faithful living that may include some of that. But anyway, I'm just, I'm just thinking about that again. Um, I know I ranted for a while there. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. I think <laughs> Pastor Michael to accept Amil. It's not Lockwood. true. Join Boo. us. Join us next time when we finish. <laughs> no, we so what I will say, what I will say. Um, All right. Is, tease our next is, episode. Cause this is getting broke. We are breaking. Are this we breaking it up again? Uh, I do. I do think that we're actually much closer than you think. Um, the, the differences seem more, more extreme when the debate is dispensationalism or post-millennialism dispensationalism or amillennialism like the de- it seems more extreme um i actually think that that amillennialism is probably more so a species of post-millennialism but we can we can talk about that more so thanks for listening to us if you want to hear us this week, Monday, we released us discussing some dispensational conspiracy theories. That'll cost you $3 a month. Ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Michael, is that 25 minutes of insanity worth joining the Patreon at least with a free trial? Uh, even if that's not, if you want to not just oh, no. sign up, that $3, not only do you get that, you get every patron episode released at that level or what we have on the reactions to mark driscoll uh sermons if you join at higher levels there's even more um and you can join us in talking on telegram we have got to come back to this because i have to explain to michael the amil answer of why everyone thinks they're in the last days whatever that means um and we have to find out how big of a difference we are going to conclude it is we've got just about five minutes left in this video so we will catch you next time